You're listening to The Story Connected. In this episode, we hear the story behind the transformation of a successful elementary magnet school from a rundown underprivileged school, a journey that has united a community. Welcome to The Story Connected. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. The Story Connective is dedicated to documenting and sharing inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. In this episode, you'll hear a story told by Doug Banner, a veteran social artist, about how he helped transform a school and its community. Social artistry is a methodology for activating human potential. It's sourced from global anthropology and humanistic psychology via the life work of Dr. Jean Houston. One who studies social artistry learns to view and experience the world in ways that evoke the best possibilities for cooperation, joy, and empowerment in any situation. It's intended to give people insights, tools, and creative leadership skills for our rapidly changing world. Doug Banner is a longtime social artist with many, many stories to tell of his well-lived mythic life. He is an educator, researcher, woodworker, and more. He is the executive director of the Flow Project, a project that defines and studies the application of the flow states of artists in their creative process. He also regularly trains teachers to be social artists in Aruba, co-teaching with fellow social artist Jan Sanders. I personally started practicing and teaching social artistry a few years ago. It has given me useful leadership skills. And I'm curious and excited about its transformational and inspirational effects on people and places. I asked Doug, who's been a social artist practitioner for decades, to tell me a story of a time when he used social artistry and flow to evoke and envision a more positive and resilient reality in the community around him. And I'm so glad I did because this story is awesome, as in it inspires awe in me, and I believe it helps explain what social artistry in action looks like. I took over school as a principal. Okay. Okay. It was a ghetto school. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in my interview, and they said, you understand. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, 90% poverty, right? 90% of people, the other 10% Qualified too, but they just, they were illiterate, so they couldn't fill out the form. Seventy five percent Spanish speaking kids, English second language. Mm-hmm. Another five percent of second language non Spanish. And what they didn't tell me is kids that didn't speak English didn't actually speak Spanish either. They spoke indigenous languages from the mountains outside of Mexico City, right? So that's Zapotec and that stuff. That's different. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like really different. The school was a dumping ground for for you know substandard teachers, gang activity, big tags all over the wall. Um, the school was 50-something years old, you know, electrical systems bad. And they said, do you think you could turn the school around? And I said, yes. And they went, God, what have I done? You know, <laughs> why have I taken on this job? <laughs> well, and then I visited the school. There were mold in the carpet and broken furniture. I mean, it was, a, it was embarrassing to have a school like that. I have seen schools in third world countries in better condition, mm-hmm. right? And so... I began the process of taking this elementary school and it's still really close. So I began the process of taking this elementary school and all these kids and their story 
about being substandard and the teachers about being marginal and the parents about not caring. And within a couple of years, we were a magnet school. Wow. A couple of years? Yeah, I think three years was it what it took. And I applied the principles of art. I applied the elements of social artistry. Right? And we turned the school into a dual language immersion school where every single child in the school was learning to speak Spanish and English. And the first year of the program, we had kindergartners reading, writing, and speaking English and Spanish by Christmas. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah. Wow. It, it, I mean, it nearly killed me you know, <laughs> physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was demanding, demanding thing. You know, and people didn't understand or believe that that this kind of change could happen. But by the end of it, we started, like, the, wow. my first assembly, I had 20 or 30 people and the kids. The, the, the second year of the program, we had a Cinco de Mayo party. We had over 500 people show up to that party. Wow, the yeah. families of the children families. as well. So you got the families engaged. Yep. yep. I had meetings with... Uh, in order to get, well, I, I, I found my allies, I aligned my allies, you know, my, my call on the inner crew, um, found people that could help me with the language barriers, because I, I, I have little Spanish, but I have absolutely no indigenous, and I didn't speak uh, Tagalog either, which is others of my kids in Chinese. Found interpreters, um, I ran my parent meetings as I, I was explaining the changes, I had English with Spanish translators, but I also had Spanish speakers with English translators. So the English-speaking parents had to sit there with the headphones listening to the translation so they could know what it was like. Wow. You know? So the Spanish, the English were listening to the Spanish translators and the Spanish were listening to the English translators and everyone was listening to the translations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so smart. Yeah, yeah. And, but this is, all, this is all part of, you know, the work as a life of its own. Yeah. Surrendering to, to the resistance and surrendering one's ego. Changing the energy of the place, but changing the story. Moving from a deficit model to a strength-based model. Uh, when the school started teaching in Spanish, because half the kids are learning in Spanish-speaking classroom and half the kids in English-speaking, you switch. That's a whole other story about what dual language is about. But suddenly, there was a place in the school for the grandmas and grandpas who had taken care of the kids who spoke no English to come in and be aides in the classroom and volunteers in the classroom because it's a Spanish-speaking classroom. I can do that. They stayed away when it was only English only. You mm -hmm. know? But now here's an opening. So, so we're having more people. It's, it, you're, you're having people speaking Spanish in the hallways. We had one day was an English day, one day was a Spanish day. And on Spanish days, all interactions that had to be in Spanish, as much as you knew, and on the other days, it was English, and it was English, and, and so yeah. everybody had to get involved. The community had to get involved. The businesses in the community had to get involved. You know, we had to have everybody behind this. So it was a huge shift wow. in in the, in the thinking, and and you know, in the end, we had professors from Western Washington University signing up to get their kids in that school. Wow. So I want to go back to the beginning of that project. After you accepted, and you're like, oh my gosh, what did yeah. I just do? What is the first thing or the first couple of things that you did? I attended to the sensory physical. Mm -hmm. Okay. Walking into that school with stinky, moldy carpets and blistering walls and broken furniture. Like, this is not working. No. Okay. So I 
walked over to the maintenance department and I said, I need paint. Uh, we don't have, we can't buy paint. I said, I, I know you have a storage locker full of paint out there because you, you never use it all. I didn't even care what color it is. I didn't even care if they match, but I want my building painted before the kids get back. I want new, fresh walls. I want the smell of new paint. And, and he agreed. And so, you know, it's like first ally. Yeah. And I, and then we walked through the school and, and, uh, it's just like we can't deal with these carpets. The place smells bad. Took the carpets out, replaced. You know, so where we could, we replaced the carpet. We replaced everything at one time, but we replaced the worst of it. Mm-hmm. Fixed the heating system. Fixed the most dangerous um, uh, electrical problems. And then I personally went in and I took all the broken furniture and I threw it out in the front yard of the school, so the whole world could see it. Wow. So, you know, sometimes you have to use a subterfuge, you know, embarrass the district. And so I just threw all that out on the front porch and I went to um, one of those places that does clearing house for offices that close and things like that. And I bought my middle school kids all new desks and tables, you know. And so when the kids came back, they came back into an environment on the sensory physical level that was more inviting uh, it, it gave them the message that they cared, right? That they were cared for and cared about. The teachers, too. I mean, the teachers came back, too, with the same thing. I mean, everybody needed to be in a physical environment that said, this is a place of learning. Yeah. And that is, that, so the sensory physical level was huge. And that's where we start. And that's where we, Jan and I start with Aruba. We mm-hmm. start with what on the sensory physical level can you change? Mm-hmm. That's not going to cost a lot of money. That's not going to get people coming down on your head. You know, it's, it's so it's so simple, really. Okay. It's just not rocket science. And then on the psychological historic level, I had to work with the story. We're a ghetto school. We're a bad school. We're stupid kids. You know, we're all, there's always something wrong with us. The parents don't care. I'll tell you what. Those migrant parents care more about their kids' education than most middle-class whites I know. Wow. Because they see education as the way their kids are going to get out of poverty. Yeah. You know? We've got time for the emotion. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's just like, I, it makes me angry, you know, that, that, that sense of entitlement that people come. And here these people were working from dawn to dusk, right? Leaving their kids, not sometimes seeing their kids for weeks at a time because they're working so much, leaving their kids with a grandma or grandpa, right? So that, so that they could get their kids an education. I remember one time I had a boy that was really, he was a, a seventh grader. God, he was always in trouble. He was disrespectful. And so I called and I called and I called out to the fields. I couldn't. So I drove out to the fields. I found his mother, talked to the field boss. I said, don't get in my way. I'll hurt you. you wow. know? So her, her, her son needs her right now. So I took her in. And she was sitting in the office when this kid, we'll call him Juan. I don't want to give me. So Juan comes in, sees his mom there, goes absolutely white, right? And she stands up and she grabs him by the front of the shirt and just slaps him across the face. So, and I'm going, oh, God, <laughs> you know, what have we done? And then she, she just sits him down and just rails and rails and rails on him. And I, my counselor was Spanish-speaking, and uh, we didn't interrupt. And then she said, I'm done, and I had to take her back to work. We came back. Well, she had, this mom, had railed on this boy about, 
how he was wasting his life and how he was embarrassing the entire family and how he was intelligent and he had the opportunity to get a good job if he finished his education and how hard everyone was working and how it was important and why, how could he hurt his mother this way. And Woo. Yeah, it was intense. And I could kind of get the sense of it from, from her speaking, but when the when the counselor shared with me all the stuff and a couple of things happened. One was he turned around, but the other thing was don't screw up because El Director will go out in the fields and get your parents. <laughs> it was like, wow. Yeah, we, my staff called that the myth of Doug. <laughs> you know? so, and I did. I would go out. And, and so... So from the psychohistorical level, you're looking at like change, how you change that story around, that people yeah, do care, that right, people are right, invested. Right. And so I shared that story around with people. I mean, yeah. oh, they really do care. You know? And then the, like the, the businesses... Uh, I met with the Rotary Club and the Lions Club and, and all the different businesses clubs, and I explained what we are trying to do and how important it was. 23% of the community was resident Spanish. Wow. The local grocery store started offering Spanish lessons to their employees so that they could interact with the Spanish people when they came in to buy their groceries. Mm. You know, simple stuff. Wow. Uh, businesses started speaking Spanish. You know, they put signs up, Spanish spoken here, you know, and, and things like that. So you could see the whole community transforming, changing the story about all these immigrants to these are people who are part of our community. Oof. They're valuable members of our community. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge story change. Yeah. So big change. And, and then on the mythic symbolic? The mythic symbolic was, I think that happened more with the integration of the cultures because suddenly there was a, mu there was a much more free sharing. There was a much more uh, clear understanding of 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 the stories behind the stories of how people got there. And the entire community was on the hero's journey. Mm. And, the, and the entire community got the call to change the story. Mm. And maybe they didn't understand it at that level, but they certainly answered the call and they stepped into that place of the unknown. And, and the gifts that came were astounding. They made allies. Wow. And, and so, yeah, you know, things like uh, the, the local hospital would actually turn Spanish parents away if they didn't have some English and there wasn't a translator. You wow. know, and that was, I, I, had, I went to war with one of the ER people with that. I took the kid in, had 106 temperature. They turned him away, went in, this isn't going to happen. And maybe the, on the mythic level, there was a hero that emerged, right? But uh, for me, whenever, whenever, you create something, you know, whether it's a piece of art or systemic change, it cannot be about you yeah. because it won't sustain, you know. And so I think, the, I think there's a myth in the community about the heroic adventures, but they shifted so it's the heroic adventures of the community mm -hmm. because they'll tell these stories about different people who, who created this together. Wow. which was always my intention. And so here we are now, 10 years away from when I did that. The program is still going. They've created new programs for kids who transfer mm -hmm. in, and they have advanced Spanish teach language and literature classes at the high school, things that never would have existed had we not done that and had, had we not done it as a community. Talk about impact and like game-changing. Yeah. You going in, and I know you don't feel like it's about you, nor is it about you. But to create that kind of systemic change by basic things like paint, like 
painting the, the color walls. of the paint, yeah. making people feel like they care yeah. in a physical, sensory right. way and in a psychological way too. And the impact just keeps giving. Yeah. I mean, that's one reason why I'm super fond of education. It's right. one of those, those roots yeah. that if you can change around a school, the amount of children that are going to benefit from that and then yeah. ripple that out in their own lives. Yeah, I, and, and I knew that we were going to be successful because the language changed. Mm. And by that I mean how people talked about the school. It was the school, that school. And then as we started to grow and change, it became our school. Wow. Wow. There it is. Yeah. For somebody who wants to get involved in this, that's looking around at the world and going, oh my gosh, what, what do we do? Yeah. What would you suggest to them? And would you suggest social artistry to them? And if so, why? Or would you suggest studying? Like, what would you suggest they do? Get involved. Get involved. <laughs> you know, my grandfather used to say, if you don't live life, you'll miss it. And if at the end of it, it's not a good story, you miss something. <laughs> you know? I, I think... Part of my role as an educator is to give people the courage and permission mm. to apply the skills that they have to whatever they want to do. And if in the process of doing that, I can give them social artistry as a pathway uh, to that creative process, then I'll do that. As, as to the why, I think it's important. I mean, we all, it, it gives us, I think social artistry, even if we aren't identifying ourselves as social artists, gives us the tools to meet the world head on, you know. Uh, teaching the university, the number of, and I've taken over some new classes where I have the, the young deer in the headlight students, right? It's like, well, I'm in college now. What am I going to do? You know, it's like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I said, neither do I. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But I, I, I introduce them to social artistry. Every class, I introduce them to the flow state. I introduce them to the power of story and narrative, which is a whole other thing because I work, I work up on understanding and, mm -hmm. and how narrative works in, in the individual and the organizations that, so I give them that, and then they have a choice to step into that field, and they have permission to accept whatever it is that they have to offer. But so often they come out, they come into the university, and they don't feel like they know anything. They're supposed to know everything. Uh, they feel deficient. They feel depleted. They feel like they have a deficit, right? Mm -hmm. And my job is to help them find their strengths and then, you know, Give them the permission and the tools to really... Yeah, yeah. most people need permission to be creative. Mm -hmm. I learned very, very early on when I was teaching art in elementary school, never finish, a, never finish anything in front of the kids. Start to teach them a technique and then stop and let them take off. Because if you finish it, they hold themselves to that standard. Mm -hmm. And that is a gross injustice. Absolutely. Wow. You know, you give them the technique... And then you let them create their own standard. It's like the story about the the little god who's or the little girl who's drawing a picture, and the teacher walked up and said, "What are you doing?" And and she says, "I'm drawing a picture of God." And the teacher goes, "Oh, sweetie, nobody knows what God looks like." And she says, "Well, well, when I'm done, 
know, it's like let them have that. Mm -hmm. You know, let them have that. And and so you know, I think it's important. I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't important. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't believe in it. If I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't be doing it at all. Why do you believe in social strategy? Why do I? Because I I've used it. I've seen it change. I've I you know it's it's just a part of who I am. All these these elements of of how humans can work with each other. You know, I've I've been in the in the trenches. I spend most of my life in the trenches. I got the scars to prove it. <laughs> in all my life, of the things that I've learned, social artistry and the flow project and the power of narrative have been the three things. They're the three legs of the stool. Yeah. You know, without with one missing, it's not. So I've spent most of my life trying to find a third leg. I had the narrative piece, right? And I had the, the flow piece, but I didn't have the social artistry piece. Mm-hmm. And once I got the social artistry piece, now I have the, the stability of the three-legged stool, you know? And so that's the why. is It's about balance. Yeah. It's, it's completely about balance. What's the role of community? In allowing people the permission and the ability to get engaged. Well, I think part of it is the issue of teaching tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a, a teacher in the little town called Ferndale, we had a situation of um, skateboards on the sidewalks, and the townspeople were down on it. You know, it's got to be very ugly. It was very ugly, so it was a town meeting called, and we got the community, the whole community together, representatives of the community, even the skateboarders were there, and yelling back and forth and all this anger, right? And I was facilitating this gladiatorial event. And so I said, calm down, okay, so let's get each individual. So, so you know, the shop owners told their story about how they were concerned that the skateboard kids would hit people that were coming out of their stores and hurt them. And the, the um, parents were talking stories about their kids getting hurt and the kids where we should have a right to have skateboards and all this stuff. And this Stella, this little, little lady... Again, not her real name, but she stands up. Can I say something? Well, and she looks right at the kind of the ringleader of the skateboard. She says, well, I don't, I don't really mind if you skateboard on the sidewalk, but when you're coming down the sidewalk and you're coming so fast and if you hit me, you'll hurt me. She goes oh, like this. <laughs> you'll hurt me, my lights. And... Um, <laughs> This this tough kid, he looks at this woman and he's and he's going like this. He's tears in his eyes. He goes, "Grandma, I would never hurt you." Oh, and, and, and so it's like everybody's going, "Oh my God!" You know, they're crying. So we got we got the conversation going about what's really important here. And as a community, said, "What's really important is safety for the elders, safety for the people walking the sidewalks, and safety for the kids." So that they came together as a community and said, how can we make this a situation where everybody is safe? It's a community agreement. Mm-hmm. And that's the role of community is, is the willingness to come together and agree on what's important. Mm. The, the end of that story was this fellow stood up and he said, uh, he said, well, you know, I just bought the old lumber um, business just over the bridge on the edge of town, which is very close. And uh, I fenced it. And he said, but I'll tell you what, I will be willing to take the gates off and the kids can skate in the parking lot. They can make their ramps and do whatever they want as long as there's no drugs and no illegal behavior, no alcohol. He said, you guys can just have that for as long as it's sitting there 
um, until I start developing it. But you can have that place to skate, nice. and you'll be safe. Was fence. The police went by on a regular basis anyway, so the kids, there was some oversight there. It solved the problem. I mean, the kids had a place to skate. Everybody got what they needed, which was to be safe. And it only happened because the community was willing to come together, be in that place of conflict and resistance, right? And then move past that to a common agreement. Yeah. And once they had the common agreement, it was easy to solve the problem. Yeah. So that's part of it. Thank you, Doug. You're welcome. You can find out more about Doug and what he's been up to at DougBannerStoryteller.com. That's Banner with two N's. And at TheFlowProject.org. As a person who loves creativity and the creative process, I find The Flow Project and what they've been up to really interesting. I suggest you check it out. This has been an interview by Rebecca Rhapsody at StoryConnective.org. If you found value in this story and support Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing stories of resilience and possibility to the world, there are many ways you can help. Share this interview with friends, family, and coworkers. Subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. Like us on Facebook. Like Rebecca Rhapsody on Instagram. The Story Connective is 100% listener and viewer supported. So learn how to become a member of our crowdfunding campaign that financially supports this project at patreon.com slash storyconnective, where you can become a patron of ours, which has special perks. Audio recording and production by Loxley Clovis, outro music by Rebecca Rhapsody, and intro music is the song Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle under the Creative Commons Attribution License. Special thanks to Doug Banner, the Gene Houston Foundation, and our fiscal sponsor, Elsa, a nonprofit committed to empowering individuals to take care of the future. Learn more about Elsa at elsa.org. That's E-L-L-S-S-A dot org. The purpose of this audio interview is for non-profit education, news, and commentary. This interview is released under the attribution Share Alike Creative Commons license. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you.